this is just a special day. Special day for me personally because uh, 29 years ago, uh, I became a dad for the first time. And my daughter was up there, and I got to dedicate one of those little ones. What a, what a, what a joy that is for me personally. And I know it's, it's Father's Day, and it's, a day, of, it's a, great, a day of great joy and rejoicing for many. I know it's also a hard day for some. It's a hard day. It's a day of loss. It's, it's a day of remembering. It's a day maybe of some disappointment. And uh, we just want to rejoice and, and even mourn and remember uh, together. But as I think about these little ones and their families, I think of the hopes and the fears that I have for them as, as a dad, as pops, and as a pastor. And not just not just these kids, but all of our kids, the next generation. By the way, I'm hearing good things about camp and our high schoolers, continuing to hear good things. I know we've got some parents in the house, and I know we've got maybe some nervous parents who are going to be sending away their middle schoolers for the first time uh, next week, and they'll be, those buses will be crossing pretty soon. But we want to continue to pray for good conversations, pray that those young ones would come, come to faith and be strengthened in their faith and really understand the depth of community that uh, they have available to them. But I want to talk just for a second about hopes and fears. Hopes and fears. When I, when I look at these little ones, my hope is that they would come to trust and love Jesus in a real way at a young age. My fear is that they would trust in themselves and Jesus wouldn't be real to them. My hope is that they would put Jesus at the top in the center of all that they do, and it'd be a natural response to God's love. My fear is that Jesus would just be a nice idea for nice people, and he wouldn't really captivate their hearts, maybe a source of good advice, wise teaching every now and then. My hope is that when times get hard, they'll turn to Jesus. My fear is that hard times would take them away from Jesus. So those are my hopes and my fears. Many of you in this room, I believe, would, would share those hopes and those fears. I can't help but be a little bit nostalgic today as my daughter's birthday, it's Father's Day, dedicating little Phoebe Jane. My youngest son's birthday was yesterday, the whole, just a lot. But I was thinking back to 29 years ago when I became a father for the first time. And I was thinking about those times. Some of you will remember um, it was the day before that OJ was on the run in the, in the Ford Bronco. <laughs> so I remember walking into that hospital and... Kim was a, uh, a nursing student. I was a graduate student in American literature, of all things, trying to figure out life. And I remember walking into that hospital, and, and Kim had said, if this goes wrong, if this happens, this happens, this happens, things are bad. 
All those things happened. We had the stat C-section cart. We had all those things, and I was scared to death. I remember just being cold and shaking. And then I remember that first year of being completely clueless as a young dad. All the education in the world, but no clue how to take care of this little one. We'd read the books. I know they didn't have all the tools they've got now. But I'm like, how, how can we care for this little one? We didn't have any money. We'd dig through the couch to find $1.90 to go get Papa John's breadsticks. Married student housing at Purdue, Claire stayed in a little closet. That's where her crib was. She always jokes about that. But as I remember those, they were simple times and there were some good times, but they were hard times. And there's a spiritual truth that's simple, but it's hard. And it's that the hard things of life, the hard times, expose our weaknesses. And when we name those, when we acknowledge those weaknesses, we open the door for God's strength to enter in. And that's really the bottom line of the message that we're going to talk about today as we continue our series in the book of Judges and specifically with this judge named Gideon. But before we turn there, I would invite you to think about your own weaknesses. What have your weaknesses exposed? Or what have the hard times exposed in you? What are the weaknesses that are there, and have you cracked open the door for God to enter in and meet you in that time of weakness? For me, that weakness was very simple, a little thing called self-reliance. And I got it all figured out that first year. (laughs) Something the Lord continues to work on with me. But I want to take you to this world of Gideon. The story of Gideon, and we'll be in Judges chapter 6 and 7. I want to give you an overview. Don't have time to read every word of 6 and 7. But I'll give you some of the plot summary, and we'll, we'll stop at some particular places in the narrative. But this is a rise and fall story. There are some high points, and we'll see that today, but if you're familiar with the Bible, you may only remember the good things about Gideon. There's some rough things about Gideon that we'll talk about next week. But this morning, we want to follow Gideon on his rise, on his journey. And we're in Judges 6, a little bit of backstory. We talked about the judge, Deborah, for a couple weeks. Deborah has died. There's been this cycle of sin, this cycle of abandoning God, and then crying out to God because there's a need. And then God will send a judge to rescue. So at this particular time, the Israelites have been under the oppression of the Midianites, for seven years. They've been holed up in caves. Whenever they planted their crops, 
their enemies invaded. Like swarms of locusts were the people. They ravaged the land and they cried out for help. People of Israel in their desperation cried out for help. And God would send them a prophet to give them the message. I brought you up out of Egypt. I rescued you. But you have not obeyed my command. One of the central tensions in the book of Judges is God's unconditional promise. I will be with you. You will be my people. I will not abandon you. And his uncompromising call for obedience. Those two sit by, side by side and we'll see throughout the book how God will work through both of those principles. The problem with the Israelites at is this time is they've continued to worship Yahweh, continued to worship God, but they've, they've added on to it. They've been worshiping Baal as well. They've, they've had these other gods. There's a, the $10 word is syncretism. They've, they've put a bunch of things together and created kind of their own religion. This only happened back in the day. It has no application for us whatsoever today. But we've said in this series that it's faith in the darkness, and in many ways the darkness of this time connects with the darkness of our own time. So the story of Gideon. Let me take you to verse 12, 612. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon... He said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now you take this at face value, and you say, okay, here's another hero coming to the forefront. Gideon at the time is threshing wheat in the wine press. That's not where you normally thresh wheat. Normally you're more out in the open, and you, you throw up the wheat, and the shaft blows away, and it's out in the open. But they are, they are holed up in caves, they're holed up in their wine presses, so this is not a big, bold move. This is hiding from the enemy. And at this time, the angel will say, you are a mighty warrior. What is Gideon's response? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Interesting, Gideon's look at history. God, this is your fault. You've abandoned us. Forgetting about the disobedience, forgetting about worshiping other gods. The Lord turned to him, verse 14 and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. It's a clear acknowledgement of reality on Gideon's part. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Put yourself in Gideon's shoes 
for just a minute. On the one hand, you've had this supernatural appearance, an angel of the Lord is speaking directly to you. And I want to say, if you had that clear message, how could you not have faith? But there's the realistic side that says, I can see my opposition more clearly than I can see the power of God. And it's in that tension that Gideon will be called to lead. Verse 17, Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Have you ever wanted a sign from God? Clear indication, I'm on the right path. Clear confirmation that this is the way to go. Four times in the narrative, Gideon is going to ask and receive something from God that will confirm that he is on the right path. The first thing he does is the angel says, hey, go, go bring me a young goat and some unleavened bread. Bring it back here and we'll make a sacrifice. And the angel of the, Gideon would go and do that. And the angel of the Lord would touch the sacrifice and it would go up in flame. So that's the first supernatural inter- intervention that we see to confirm that this is the Lord who is speaking. Then the angel will say, all right, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to tear down your father's altar to Baal. So Gideon grew up in a household of a mix of worship of different gods. So go tear down your father's altar to Baal. Is this a big deal? Of course it's a big deal. When does Gideon go? He's going to go in the middle of the night. He's going to take 10 people with him and he's going to tear down this altar. And as you might imagine, the people are pretty angry about that. And they're going to say, bring us Gideon. We want, to, we want to execute Gideon right now. And his father finally gets some courage and says, no, no, no. Don't do that. If Baal's really a god, let Baal take care of him. So we see Gideon, his faith on the rise. But he's, and as they do this, you can sense that the winds of war are blowing. So the two sides will begin to gather their troops. On the side of Israel, we have 32,000. On the side of the Midianites, we have 135,000. I wasn't a math major, but those aren't the best odds for the Israelites. So Gideon, still afraid, says this, verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Now the commentators will say this is not all that miraculous. That could happen. 
Then Gideon, verse 39, said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. What Gideon is asking of the Lord, are you really in charge of the forces of nature? Can you really deliver? It's a question about the nature and power of God. Sometimes in the church, if you've been around church for a minute, people will say, I'm going to put a fleece out on that, or they'll use that expression, and it's almost like, hey, if the phone rings at 1 o'clock, I'll take the job. Or I'm going to flip a coin, and if it's heads this and tails this. We've got to be really, really careful about demanding a sign, a, a, a natural sign from a supernatural God. Just a quick word of caution as an aside. And we have to remember with Gideon, Gideon did not have all the resources available to him to, that we have today. He didn't have the Holy Spirit. He didn't have the word in the same way that we do. But he's looking for confirmation. He's seeking to understand the nature of God. Now, verse 2, 7 2. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against. Me. My own strength has saved me. The Israelites, 32,000. Midianites, 135. Yeah, plus or minus four to one odds. The odds aren't stacked against you enough, Gideon. That's possible, maybe. Still outnumbered. So he does this. He says, All right, if you're, he goes to the troops and said, If you're scared, if you're afraid to go into battle, you can go home. Right now, go home. So what happens? 22,000 get up and say, I'm scared. I'm out of here. I've never heard that offer made before in any other time. But 22,000 leave. 10,000 are left. We've still got greater than 10 to 1 odds. Still not thinned out enough. Still too many men. So the Lord will ask Gideon to do this test. And they go down to the river and they, he says, watch how they drink water. Some will put it in their hands and lap it like a dog. Others will kneel down. Seems like a weird test. Commentators have made all kinds of stuff out of those tests. I'm not convinced by any of those arguments. I think God is in charge and just wanted to do what he wanted to do. But what you see is that only 300 cupped it with their hands and lapped it like a dog. And those are the ones that you're going to take into battle. 300 versus 135,000. What about those odds? Again, there's a picture of the opposition you can see and God's power that you're waiting to see. One more confirmation will have to happen, though. The angel will say to, hey, if you're still afraid. Now, put yourself in Gideon's shoes for just a moment. 
300, 135,000. Would you be afraid? I mean, really. It's easy for us to look back, and we know the rest of the story, perhaps. If you're afraid, do this. Well, of course Gideon's afraid. He says, take your scout with you and go into the enemy camp and see what you see. And what they'll see or what they'll hear is some Midianites talking about a dream that one of them had, that this, it's a strange deal. Sometimes things in the Old Testament are just strange to our ears, but there's this dream that, uh, you know, this, this huge loaf of bread came in and destroyed one of the Midianite tents. And their conclusion is the Lord has given Midian to Gideon. So Gideon will hear that and be encouraged, and it will be time to go to battle. But the way that they're going to go to battle is different than what you might imagine. Take you to Judges 7.19. What's the battle plan? Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. So it's in the middle of the night. Just after they had changed the guard, they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, while each man held his position around the camp. All the Midianites ran, crying out, as they fled. What did the Israelites not have in their hands? Swords. You got a trumpet and you got a clay jar. Who's fighting the battle? The Lord. Verse 22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Not a sword is drawn. The Lord delivers the victory. Take you to verse 24. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeab. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeab at the winepress of Zeab. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. A violent, brutal end to the battle. But there's some irony here. Where is that leader, that prince, killed? At a wine press. Where Gideon was first hiding, now there's a victory delivered in a similar location. What a story of God at work in the midst of this battle. But as we've said many times, especially when we look at some of these Old Testament narratives, narratives, the Bible is for you, but it was not written directly to you. So we need to do some work here to connect some dots. So how do we interpret this story? Well, the good news is we have some help from the book of Hebrews that will Reference this. Take you to Hebrews 11.32. And what more shall I say? This is what we sometimes know as the Faith Hall of Fame. I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith 
conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Now, in that list itself, if you know the details of those folks, you'll see that this list in and of itself is a testament to the grace of God. Their faith is commended. All the rough stuff of their past is not brought out into the light. We can learn from that as well, and we'll do some of that next week. But I want to take you to the connection that I want us to see today. And I want you to take a ride in your Bible, and I want you to go to 2 Corinthians. I invite you to go to 2 Corinthians. And I want to talk about this principle of weakness and strength and see what we can do with it this morning. First of all, I take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. The Apostle Paul, he is in the business of planting churches, of taking the good news of Jesus, the gospel, throughout the world, particularly to the non-Jewish community. And in this letter to the Corinthian church, he's had some issues with the church. They've got some problems, and he's trying to speak the truth and love to them and get them to change. And he says this, 2 Corinthians 1.8, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. The Apostle Paul Holy Spirit used to write a great deal of the New Testament, despairs of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us an answer to the prayers of many. So we see this first incident right here of Paul's hardship. Why is it so hard so that God may work? I want to take you to another example quickly, 2 Corinthians 4, and let's go to verse 7. Paul says this. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. I wonder, Paul who knew the scriptures, did he, have a, did he have a memory of Gideon and the jars that were broken in the battle? I don't know that. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed Perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us but life is at work in you. And then finally, the Apostle Paul. Paul himself, 
talks about a thorn in his side. Three times, 12.8, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the connection. Now, what what does this mean to you today? 3,000-year-old story of a crazy battle, of an imperfect leader, of God working through the weakness of his people. I want to give you three parts of a process that I believe is essential for every one of us sitting here in this room. Every one of us. The first is this. Hard times expose weakness. Hard times expose weakness. I don't care what those hard times are, whether it's something that comes from the outside that you had no part in, whether it's our own bad choices, but hard times expose weakness. If you're a coach and you're playing somebody, the stronger your opponent, the more easily your weaknesses are revealed. That's simply reality. Hard times expose weakness. The second point, though, is this. Naming your weakness opens up the door for God's strength. I want you to consider your hard times, whatever those are, the weakness that they have that has been exposed. What happens when you name that weakness? If it's a sin to confess, it's a, it's, it's a situation where you just say, I am at the end of my rope. Lord, I cannot do this on my own. I do not have what it takes. Have you been there? Do you know what that's like? There's an opportunity to name it rather than neglect it. When we neglect that, when we minimize it, when we pretend like it's not there, we, I just can do this on my own strength. I'm just going to suck it up and not acknowledge the reality that I don't have what it takes. So there's this gap between the weakness that is exposed and our ability to just name it. Say what it is. What happens when we do that is we're opening up our hearts and our minds. We're opening the door for God's strength to enter in. If you're like me, you're pretty hard-hearted and hard-headed sometimes. And unfortunately, I need the hard times to say, hey, you can't do this on your own. There's one more step, though, and that's to believe that God will give you what you need in the moment. 
I can't receive if I don't ask. I won't ask if I don't think I need help. So the simple truth, hard times expose weakness. Naming your weakness opens the door for God's strength. And God will give you what you need. What will he give you? He'll give you his very presence. The Holy Spirit, we don't need to put out a fleece. We have the Holy Spirit. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of you today, for the, for the first time, you've got to come to the conclusion and say, I can't do this on my own. I need help from the outside. And that's really what grace is. It's God giving us what we need that we cannot do in and of ourselves. It starts with what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that he's paid the penalty for our sin. He, he's lived the perfect life. He, he died on our behalf. And the first step is to put our faith and trust in Jesus. And then we have a lifetime of having access to God giving us what we need through his word, through his spirit, and through his people. This morning, I want to invite you to remember that grace, to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. But before we do that, I want to invite you to bow your heads in prayer. And I want to, I want this to be your prayer this morning. And it's what's going to be available for you on a prayer card, and I'm going to make it personal for you. So would you pray with me as we prepare to go to the table together? Father, help me to see my weakness in the hard times that I am going through right now. In the next hard right thing I have chosen to do, and in the hard trials that have come my way, I do not have what it takes. I am exposed. Help me, Holy Spirit, to see the gift of this reality where I am hard-hearted and hard-headed, break me. Where I am discouraged and despairing, encourage me. Help me to see, Jesus, that your grace is sufficient. Help me to really believe that you are always working to fulfill your plans for your kingdom and your plans for me. Remind me, Jesus, when I downplay or forget your love for me and your people. Remind me when I am afraid that you are always with me. Remind me that when I rely on my own strength and my own smart thinking, that I am simply a broken jar of clay, a vessel for your light to shine through me. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.